You're listening to a special Renew Economy podcast series, Locking in the Green Energy Transition, presented by Giles Parkinson and supported by global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. Hello and welcome to another episode of a special podcast series that uh, we're conducting called Locking in the Green Energy Transition. This is the third episode of this series sponsored by Norton Rose Fulbright. And in this one, we're talking about offshore wind and how do we make offshore wind viable in Australia? And we've got a great great lineup of guests um, to listen to. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the uh, editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV Focus, the Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me is um, Jackie Plant from Norton Rose Fulbright. Um, Jackie uh, is a partner in Norton Rose. Her practice focuses on the energy transition, um, particularly overlooking the permitting aspects of the development and operation of a renewable energy transition. And she's been working with domestic and international clients um, for many years and uh, has has um, uh, been involved with 30 wind solar battery projects across Australia and New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania, South Australia during that time. Uh, Jackie, thanks for joining this podcast. Thank you, Giles. It's uh, very lovely to be on here. Thank you. And look, we're also um, joined by Maya Malik. Um, she is the founder of uh, Kima Energy. Um, she's got uh, 20 years experience in the offshore wind industry. She's um, worked overseas in Europe. She's worked with Orsted, uh, Copenhagen Offshore Partners. Um, she's helped develop the industry in Taiwan and Vietnam. She's been named one of the three most influential women in offshore wind in the Asia Pacific and one of the uh, uh, 30 most influential women uh, in the world on, on, on global wind power. And um, she's worked on a sort of variety of projects and the whole life cycle of things. So, um, thank you very much, um, Maya, for for joining this podcast. Thanks, Giles. Looking forward to the discussion. Yeah, no, look, it should be a great one. Look, um, there's lots of questions to ask about the Australian offshore wind industry. Uh, one, it's an industry that, um, well, for all intents and purposes, doesn't exist at the moment, although there's a lot of activity to make it exist. We're creating um, offshore wind zones. We've got um, tenders out for the first permits, and there's been targets set by the Victorian government, a lot of enthusiasm from the Australian federal government. But First of all, we thought we'd just go overseas for a perspective of what's happening over there. Offshore wind's been in the news quite a lot. Um, some projects have been stalled in the US and um, the UK. Um, what are the reasons for those? What are the lessons that we can draw from that? And so for that, we've done an interview also with Rob Marsh. He's the head of energy infrastructure and natural resources at the Norton Rose Fulbright team in London. And Rob advises clients in relation to all aspects of development um, for the financing of energy and infrastructure in the UK and um, across the continent. Anyway, um, let's have a listen to our discussion with Rob Marsh about um, some of the things that have been happening internationally. So for an international perspective, um, we're joined by Rob Marsh. He's the London-based head of energy infrastructure and natural resources at um, Norton Rose Fulbright in London. Uh, Rob, uh, thanks for joining this podcast. No, absolute pleasure, Giles. Thanks for having me. Look, it's um. Look, there's not been an awful lot written and spoken about the issues with some major offshore wind projects um, overseas. There's some who've um, signed up for contracts a couple of years ago and have not now been delivered or have to be, um, well, they've been pulled. They're seeking um, new contracts or or different prices. What's been the issue here? Is this the sign of an industry in crisis or are there sort of special circumstances? Can you sort of describe some of the roadblocks? that we've been seeing no for sure i, I firmly believe it, it is not an industry in crisis giles I, I think the industry is actually pretty healthy and and as has been the case both in offshore wind and, and across the renewable economy for the past few decades it's it's actually a very resilient industry that, that adapts to challenges very well i, I think we have faced uh, in a sort of macroeconomic sense, some some very challenging circumstances over over the last few years, particularly here in Europe, but but also 
globally, you know, coming on the back of a pandemic, we've been faced in Europe with an energy security crisis born out of the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we have had hyperinflation, which has massively hit supply chains and, and the, the ongoing development costs of these, these projects. And I guess all of those challenges were set against what, in fact, was actually an incredibly successful sector that was driving the capital cost of, of offshore wind down and, and seeing record levels of, of deployment just, just a few years ago. And, and we can certainly get into a, a little bit more detail around some of the, the challenges and issues that we've seen in the sector, both historically, but, but in, in the last few years as well, and, and some of the causes that have, have seen some of these projects stall. But I, I don't think it's an industry in crisis, Giles. In fact, if you look at the next generation of projects, particularly here in the UK, but, but in some of the, the, the newer offshore wind jurisdictions that are, are coming through, in fact, I, I think the, the future for offshore wind is, is hugely encouraging. So the headlines were really about the sort of the nature of the contracts and the pricing of those contracts. And as you said, they're kind of sort of met with inflationary pressures, which is, sort of, mm, you know, mm. push up the costs of, of, of supply chains. So some of those projects have been pulled. I mean, perhaps they'll be revisited. Um, yeah. What have governments or the um, sort of authorities been doing in various jurisdictions about that then? I mean, how have they been accommodating this in the future? And how have they kind of relaunched the industry? So I, I can talk specifically to the UK being being based here in in London and, and having worked in the the UK offshore wind sector for for nearly 20 years now it's I think the government has acknowledged that the the strike prices in the CFD were were too low they they weren't working for for industry and and our our auction round five was evidence of that where where there were no bids for CFDs so the the government has revisited that is is currently consulting on on AR6 and AR7 with a view to an increased strike price and and coming back with with more support but it's it, it's about more than the the CFD it, it's about encouraging the industry as as a whole and again we we can discuss a little bit more around sort of government facilitation and, and the role of government because it's, it's not just about subsidizing the sector the uh, the whole government policy that surrounds offshore wind the way in which governments enable this sector to to come forward and, and grow is is critical and i think for a, a jurisdiction like like yours that doesn't yet have an offshore wind industry and is looking at how to how to sort of turbocharge that and, and deliver, I think, these these lessons that that we've learned, because it certainly hasn't always been done correctly in this part of the world. I think those lessons will be important. Well, well let's get onto the, some of those, um, some of the, th the ways that governments have supported, I mean, not just in the sort of the pricing of, of auctions and mm. things like that. Can you go through some of the some of the things and, and, and some of the things that Australia might want to think about? Yeah, look, I mean, if, if you you start at the start. I think the the awarding of sites is is very important. The way in which that process is run is is critical. Ensuring that it's it's clear who has what rights and is awarding what rights. If if I've understood correctly, you you have a similar situation in Australia to, to that which we have in, in the UK, where there is, is sort of different ownership of the seabed and the rights uh, at different uh, points as, as you come away from the coastline. And so ensuring that the whole regulatory system is, is correctly set up to manage that, that any awards process is, is fully transparent. That, that's key. Because uh, again, this will overlay, I think, quite a bit of our discussion. This is a global sector. Now, you know, when we were first developing offshore wind here in the UK, there was one project in Denmark and a couple in development in Germany. But it, it, it wasn't like you had a, a global industry and various jurisdictions competing for what is a very constrained supply chain. Uh, now it is a global industry. And so I think it's it's critical for Australia to get that, that early stage development process right. Because I think if, if the sector as a whole, and by that I mean not just the, the energy companies to develop these projects, but the supply chain, the lenders, if, if they look and there's uncertainty or there's challenges, or 
to put it another way, there's easier places to do it. It's going to make it a lot harder to, to, to get the industry off the ground. But I think uh, around that whole development side, the planning piece of this is is also key. And, and that hasn't been a success in, in the UK. And, and certainly the same is true for other jurisdictions. It, it can take years to obtain the relevant consents to to work your way through the mire of environmental requirements and while at heart obviously these are all key considerations and these projects must be developed correctly i think the government can play a much more proactive role in in streamlining that because there's an awful lot of money that is at pure risk at that early stage in in development and if you want to encourage sponsors to part with these these millions and millions of dollars when when there's absolutely no certainty whatsoever on on whether there's a project they can deliver then i think the the more transparent the the regulatory system the the more clear the process the better Okay, okay. Um, just on the supply chain issue is really um, interesting because there's a lot of discussion in Australia and I guess in other countries sort of seeking to sort of establish an offshore wind industry mm. as to how much should be sourced locally. Now, I mean, sort of talking with offshore wind industry players, there's a smart way of going about this. Um, yeah. I don't think it's realistic to think that every country can do everything, but some countries have sort of advantages that others don't. So where do you think that, I mean, what lessons might you'd bring from the UK would you hazard a guess as to or an observation as to where Australia um, might play to its own advantages in, in, in the supply chain yeah I mean the local content side of things is is important and it's it's been a feature of of a number of, of jurisdictions that have, have taken their offshore wind industry forward in including the uk you know that that was a, a consideration and as part of the the cfd bidding process albeit not sort of stipulated levels of, of local content but uh, I, i'm a believer personally in in letting the the markets do what they're good at and letting them deliver and and quite often you'll get the right outcomes for australia is a much bigger version of of the uk right it's it's an island ultimately and i think to to successfully develop the industry there there's an awful lot of sense in in developing the industry in australia not just importing everything but but developing your port infrastructure really encouraging that manufacturing base to, to develop such that Australia really becomes a, an industry hub for that that whole part of the world. And, and I think that that's a very meaningful opportunity. The, the UK have, have done that, I think, quite successfully. They recognised a long time ago that, that while offshore wind was, was obviously good for the environment and, and the green creds, uh, without wanting to sound cynical, what the Conservative government saw was that the wind was good for UK PLC. It's it's good for industry. It's a job creator. It boosts manufacturing. And and at a time when when manufacturing was struggling and and the economy was struggling here in the UK, that's a very positive story. And I I think we've seen that play out in in other jurisdictions as well. Well, in, in, indeed, in the US with the Inflation Reduction Act is actually quite a clever sort of description of the, um, of the policy sure. because that's exactly where it leads. Um, mm -hmm. So for Australia then, um, I guess it becomes down to if you're going to establish an industry, if you're going to sort of get, you know, the, those, those sort of level of participation uh, from, the, from the local sector, you need to have an offshore wind industry of, of, of certain scale. So I'm just wondering... Um, how you go about that and, um, and and how realistic, for instance, the Victorian targets. I think they want two gigawatts by 2030 uh, or 2052, mm. four gigawatts by 2035, nine gigawatts by 2040. Now, other jurisdictions, yeah. yeah, other jurisdictions are also talking about offshore wind in New South Wales, um, in, in uh, Western Australia, and I think Tasmania and South Australia to varying degrees. Um, Victoria is the only state to actually sort of set a target is that going to be enough to actually sort of create an industry or do do we need more from maybe from a federal perspective or or something i think i think you need more just setting the targets of itself is not enough it's a positive statement for sure and that that implementation statement 
three is uh, i think is encouraging to to the market it, it shows intent it shows strong support but it's it, it's hot air without the the accompanying regulatory framework that that's required without the port infrastructure and and again the the implementation statement from from what i've seen and i've have the luxury of not having to read all the detail because we have excellent colleagues in Australia who do that. But it, from what I understand, you know, they they, they have actually thought this through. It, it isn't just a case of setting arbitrary targets. There seems to be a, a tacit recognition that you've got to develop the grid, you've got to develop the, the port infrastructure. It, it's a whole industry that is required to deliver offshore wind it's not just about setting some some targets and saying this is what we're, we're going to hit in terms of the targets themselves i mean my, i think um, perhaps ambitious i mean to sit here now in 2024 and say is it ambitious to deliver two gigawatts in eight years time possibly not but we're, we're in a market now where people are signing capacity reservation agreements for turbines seven, eight years in advance of requiring them to be installed. So actually, it's it's not unrealistic that it, it does take that that sort of lead time to to deliver. But but two gigawatts as a number, you know, I, I think in the the world we live in now and the way in which offshore wind has evolved is is fully achievable you know when, when you look again at the sort of nascent uk market we we were developing very small projects here of the sort of 100 megawatt size but that was because the technology was so much smaller you know the the whole next generation of projects here in the uk will will all be over a gigawatt and a, a number of them were over three gigawatts so that that sort of explosion of size and scale has already happened and uh, and i think from a cost efficiency perspective it, it only really makes sense to do it at that kind of scale so uh, actually setting these targets uh, perhaps in some ways actually aren't that ambitious and, and are, are fully achievable i mean d doubling the target in the space of three years and and then over doubling it again five years later you know again it, it really comes down to delivering on everything else, to having the regulations in place, having a grid that can actually manage and cope with that level of intermittent power, and and having the the supply chain built up around it. But but in terms of being achievable, yes, I think it is. Mm. Well, it's, it's interesting what you say though about the um, the uh, the lead times for ordering sort of these turbines sort of up to mm. up to seven mm. years. It means that it means those projects got to get cracking if they do want to be delivering by twenty thirty two. Well, this is it. You, you've got to be thinking so far ahead. And, and the other major impact that that has is that you, with those capacity reservation agreements, you, you're paying significant advance payments for your manufacturing slots. And there's only a certain category of, of sponsor and developer that can put that kind of money at, at pure risk, because that's what it is, right? You, you're, you're putting major advance payments down on on projects that don't even have their environmental consents let alone planning consent cfds or, or anything else so it that that upfront risk and and sunk development cost is is significant but but that's that again is the world we live in the supply chain constraints are are really very very significant at the moment I wonder if we can just return to the auction process um, mm. because Victoria is in the, at, at that stage now where it's considering and it's kind of sort of laid out sort of broad outlines, you know, sort of 20 year contract um, term contracts, but it's still sort of yeah. not entirely clear about sort of the options they have on sort of, you know, particularly in terms of indexation adjustments and other things like that. Yeah. From what you've seen in the UK, what, what, what can you suggest that, um, I mean, either in the final design or, or the considerations that might be taken into account in, in, in actually sort of creating this? Because this is just going to be very, very important. One, to make sure that these things can actually be built, and, and two, that they can be done in a way that um, that is competitive. No, I agree, and and it, it it'll be critical to get this right. I I'd expect that a lot of these projects will will be leveraged and and bringing in project finance and and other forms of, of financial support, and and the the debt market will require. Uh, certainty and, and a bankable CFD structure or, or other support regime and, and the, we, we've 
sort of lived and breathed this to some degree through the the recent Polish um, CFD process where where their first round of projects are, are now coming through financial close and the second round's been awarded and uh, uh, completely expectedly the the financial markets have looked at that Polish CFD and question one is what's different to the UK because that's what they're used to banking right they they, they understand the UK CFD market they understand how it works it is bankable has been banked and therefore those benchmarks are are important and i think uh, victoria would be very sensible as as would would australia as a whole to to be looking at the the cfd regimes around the world there's just a, a recent norwegian one that's that's been released and and look carefully at at what's worked there what what has been good how it's been structured and to the extent that that you're departing from those models being able to to tell a credible story and and provide sensible bankable reasons as as to those departures because as as we both know the the project finance market works on on precedent they they will benchmark any deal against a previous in in order to get credit committees comfortable with the risk profile of the project being financed. So I think from a, a debt point of view, that that CFD angle is is critical. And and I think things like you touched there, Giles, on on inflation that again in the in the current climate and the market in which we're in and, and looking at the the problems that have been caused by by inflation over over the past eighteen to twenty four months, I think that it's critical to get that bit right with with any new CFD that they put forward. How, how, how do you do that? Because I mean, sort of, you know, the, the general rate of inflation might be, you know, say five or six, seven percent. But I think what we've seen in the offshore wind industry is that the actual inflation for the sort of, you know, the projects themselves have been, you know, of a, a, a considerable scale above that. Um, how do you kind of set those, you know, um, adjustments, uh, adjustment allowances? Yeah, I mean, it, I guess when when looking at it from the Australian perspective, that there's a whole variety of factors you're going to have to take into account as to to how that indexation methodology works. But it's it's relatively straightforward here in the UK. It's not perfect for sure, and and it's it's just benchmarked against a, a, an index, and that price is indexed year on year on year, and that therefore that strike price is is adjusting in accordance with that that indexation mechanic it query it, it's a, the reason i'm hesitating is if you look at the last project that that was financed here in the uk it actually was departing from the cfd so we closed moray west last year and and moray west is the first project that had the majority of its power that was being sold outside of the cfd and that that was a very deliberate move from the sponsors on on that project they i think the the sponsor market has found the the cfd to perhaps be a little constraining that the the rate at which that that strike price is inflating certainly in recent years has not been tracking the power prices um, and we we've been in a world in in the last few years where in fact projects are deliberately delaying their CFD and, and trying to push that start date out as far as physically possible because the the longer they can be selling their power post COD into the market, the more money they're making because the, the power prices are, are way, way in advance of the strike price and and the, the rate at which that strike price is is being indexed so well that's right we, i we've think se- I, we've, we've said that not onshore wind and and, and in solar projects as well so yeah it's quite, a, quite a exactly strategy. yeah yes. and and look we, we've got a world now in in the uk where where we have um cfds that were awarded in ar4 which which people are considering giving back and saying it just doesn't work we, we'd be better we'd be better with corporate ppas or other route to market solutions than than being hamstrung by by this price for 15 years because the rate at which it's it's indexed is is essentially so minimal not close to the the rate at which everything else is inflating in the market that it, it just it just doesn't work for us economically so i think 
and it's it's always hard, right? If if you look at the Victorian suggestion and looking at a potential 20-year CFD, the, the Polish market's gone with a 25-year one. You, you're talking about an incredibly long time horizon over which an awful lot of things can and will happen that will impact the the energy markets and and the price that a project can achieve and so there is always a decision here that look if you want if you want to leverage your project if you want to be debt financed you you have to as equity accept a, a slightly more conservative and and constrained revenue stream and and that's that's the deal you have to do in order to to obtain that level of certainty that, that the bank markets require. Mm. And look, Rob, um, just one sort of final question, maybe and it's about sort of social license, I guess, and look, maybe it's political mm. license as well. Um, it's, where, where, where's the situation now in the UK? Um, you know, in, in Australia, we've seen the emergence of some sort of ginger groups and, and, and some people with sort of genuine concern um, about how these projects, what they're going to look like, where they're going to be, the impacts that they might have. What's, what's, what's sort of been the story that you can sort of briefly tell us in, in, in the UK uh, with the way that the industry is is, is viewed um, by politicians and or um, sort of other stakeholders, principally the people who who live near them, I think it's it's been a relatively positive story. I think if you if you ask the those that work in the uh, the planning and consenting departments of the large offshore wind developers, they might tell you something different because, uh, yeah, they, they spend every hour of every day fighting the, the objections. But if you look at it in the context of other technologies, nuclear, um, onshore wind, solar, I think the, the level of objections are, are considerably less. I think there is that there are always objections the the fishing industry will always object um any sort of areas of natural beauty on the coastline and and by definition again quite commonly there tend to be quite a few uh will will object around the the visual impacts of of the projects but but ultimately i think again the uk now has been building and installing offshore wind for i think nearly 20 years and and I think the the country has become accustomed to it as a solution. I think they openly acknowledge the need for renewable energy and that actually by delivering renewable power offshore, it's a much neater solution than, than perhaps doing so onshore. Now, the, the Australian dynamic is, is slightly different. You have a, an awful lot more land in in areas that are sparsely populated the uk really wasn't made for for onshore renewables to be quite frank but i think the the level of objection to offshore wind has certainly reduced significantly and and uh, i think also the sponsor community have got a lot smarter in in developing the projects because they've they've been doing it now for 15 20 years they've come to understand the the marine habitat a lot better uh, understands the the impact that these these technologies potentially have how you manage that process how you manage decommissioning because because again we're we're coming into a world here in the uk where those very early projects are are not actually far off decommissioning and and looking at how that would be done or how sites would be repowered in a way that is is sensible and and not in any way damaging the, the marine environment but uh, i think again if you look at this globally it, it it the bigger objections to be honest giles have, have probably come onshore you know where you're, you're building your onshore facilities where the cabling is is coming onshore to the point of connection with the transmission system uh, again we that that we've probably spent more time grappling with those challenges than we we have with the offshore ones Interesting. Okay. Well, look, um, Rob, thank you very much for your perspective, and um, well, we look forward to seeing how the uh, the lessons learned overseas and uh, are uh, are applied in Australia. Likewise, yeah, we're excited, and uh, thanks for having me, Giles. It's been a pleasure. Uh, that was uh, Rob Marsh, the head of Energy Infrastructure and Natural Resources team at Norton Rose Fulbright in London. My um. 
Let's bring you into this conversation now. Um, we sort of we've heard from um, Rob um, about some of the issues um, and some of the lessons to be drawn uh, for Australia now. Victoria government, as mentioned before, has actually sort of set sort of quite fixed targets um, on offshore wind, uh, two gigawatts of capacity by 2032, four gigawatts by 2035, nine gigawatts by 2040. Let's start off with a really broad question. Um, are these targets achievable? Um, yes, they're very achievable. Actually, if anything, they're on the on the low side and quite conservative compared to what you would see in other countries, no, normally you're seeing very aggressive targets. So actually Victoria is quite unusual because yeah, it's uh, very credible, very achievable. If anything, I think industry would say um, it should be more ambitious, so we should show more volume. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I guess it's sort of starting from scratch. So would the industry benefit? I mean, obviously the, the industry would like to see scale. So would it benefit from say nationwide targets? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Australia is you know, an isolated country and a new market. And, you know, the Victoria title on its own is quite small in global terms. So, you know, to properly attract, you know, global investment and build up a local supply chain, you know, I would for sure support uh, more volume. And I think we would get that by sewing together, you know, lots of state targets and then, you know, combining them to show a national target, show a commitment on, on a larger scale. Okay, um, Jackie. Um, maybe we can sort of sort of focus in on on, on Victoria. Um, what are sort of some of the key challenges that you see in sort of securing the regulatory approvals for offshore wind in Australia? Oh, how long have we got, Giles? This is a great question. Um, <laughs> look, you know, as we've um, we've alluded to, we you know we are a brand new industry in offshore wind, and um, so with that comes the need to develop a whole raft of new um, a, a new regulatory framework so that um, we, we you know we've got the right we've got the right policy settings but to ensure that we now have um, the right approvals in place um, the federal government uh, did a lot of work a couple of years ago um, and now has in place uh, a, a brand new framework the um, offshore electricity, Infrastructure Act and regulations, and so we've got to work with both a Commonwealth regime and a state regime, and um, that's going to require a lot of collaboration and um, consistency in decision makers across um, multiple jurisdictions and. Maybe um, for the benefit of our listeners, I can perhaps just explain very briefly um, how the Commonwealth waters work. We essentially have a, a region up to three nautical miles off the coastline in Victoria that is um, essentially governed by Victorian legislation. And then outside of that three nautical mile zone, we have um, up to 200 miles from the coast, the Commonwealth governing that, that area. And so we... We're going to have certain approvals in um, the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth waters under the the OEI Act, and then state approvals under the State Act. And you know, it remains to be seen how those you know those state and Commonwealth approvals will work together. Um, pleasingly, Victoria is on is on the on the charge in terms of um, how we might go about an interface, and and I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, we really need to make sure that we've got a, you know, a streamlined and coordinated approach to approvals. I think there's there's a strong risk that if we don't do that, um, our proponents are going to be at risk of duplication in the assessment process, and um, you know, I can see that uh, potentially coming to light in the environmental space. Um, given that, that there'll be need there'll, there'll need to be a Commonwealth approval as well as a state approval. Um, and I you know I think one of the other the other points is that we don't yet have the full legislative regime in place yet. So for example, we you know we've obviously got the the licensing regime for feasibility licenses, but we still need the regulations that will deal with management plans and that's going to be a key part of how we manage the environmental impact. Um, as well as you know, we need to see what 
the regulations are going to look like for financial security, which is a big part of um, these projects. And I think, you know, the time that it takes to get these approvals is is really critical. We, you know, we've seen what, um, you know, what delays look like in the onshore approvals um, piece in Australia, and it's mm. certainly not fast. Um, I, I don't think that would be controversial to say. Um, but, you know, given the scale that we've got with offshore wind and, you know, the fact that this, it hasn't been done, I suspect it you know, it is going to take a long time and we, I think we really do need to have, um, you know, a skilled workforce that's going to, you know, be provided with the resources it needs to be able to assess the, the projects of such a scale um, in, you know, in those government agencies that are going to be looking at them. Yeah. So it's, yes, it's early days. Yes, yeah. I mean, look, you know, I mean, I, I think it's pretty clear that some of the um, some of the um, project um, developers um, or would be developers has sort of been a bit frustrated by some of the delays and the slow process. Is there any sign that these sort of things are being sped up now? Because I guess it really just comes back to the very first question we asked of Maya about you know how achievable these targets are because these projects have incredibly long lead times, and um, we are about to, but we haven't yet even got to the um, got to the stage of feasibility study. So these um, in environmental things, I mean, how quickly can we get them into place? And is there a real effort at, uh, at state and federal government level to, to, to get these things um, accelerated? It's a great question, Giles, because I think we need, you know, we absolutely need, you know, on the one hand, to, if we have these targets, we need to be able to realistically meet them um, in in the timeframes that they're set. And that, you know, that requires, you um, you know, uh, different parts of government working together um, where you've got, you know, the one arm of government setting those those targets and the other arm of government assessing those environmental approvals. We need to make sure that they're, they're cohesive and working together. Um, environmental approvals historically have taken a very long time to achieve, um, but I think, uh, you know, the early signs with the... Um, OEI framework when you know the industry has has actually taken off relatively quickly when we think about the fact that um, the Gippsland declared area um, was was made last year and then you know less than six months on from that we had the first applications for feasibility licenses submitted and was only just before Christmas that we had an announcement about what the preliminary decisions may look like for the that first round of feasibility licenses. So in that that time frame, we're actually seeing relatively, um, I think, uh, speedy decision making occurring. But you know, the next step after that will be the um, you know the environmental approvals and the the Commonwealth's been very clear that we we need to have those feasibility licences in place before we can proceed to obtaining the environmental approvals. And okay. um, and that and, and we've got on the on the cards a, a reform to our Commonwealth legislative regime. Um, so that you know that poses a another layer of uncertainty for our proponents. It, it, it- is that the Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act that you're referring to there? Yes, that's right, Giles. Right. Okay. So, how that how might that affect some of these projects? And we'll get onto the uh, feasibility licenses very soon. But the, the the reforms of this act, the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, what are the implications there? So maybe to take a step, um, you know, a step back, we've um, we've had a a, a review um, that was undertaken several years ago about um, the effectiveness of our environment uh, protection. Biodiversity Conservation Act, I'll call it the EPBC Act, um, and the the, res- the government's response to that was that you know it, it is really um, you know it's acknowledged that it is outdated and ineffective, and we need to reform it. And so we are going. I, I suspect we're going to see a situation where um, some projects will have applied and sought to have. Um, a referral or an approval under the EPBC Act, but um, you know there's going to come a point where we will see the introduction of um, reforms or 
replacement legislation for the EPBC Act. The you know the Commonwealth Government has already released a number of um, its consultation papers about what it's now calling the nature its nature positive plans, and you know all indications from that are that um, you know the matters of what we've previously called the matters of national environmental significance will potentially be broadened. Um, so I think you know the trend in recent times has been for um, securing environmental approvals to get more more onerous and more involved. Um, but you know in the absence of knowing exactly what the legislation will look like, and I don't think we'll see that until at least later this year. Um, what exactly the regime will look like for proponents coming further down the pipeline. Presumably there would need to be some transitional arrangements for projects that have gone in under the EPBC Act so that they're not at a disadvantage from where they've already kicked off. Um, But, you know, in an ideal world, there'd be plenty of opportunity for consultation and for proponents to be given appropriate guidance on what the regime might look like Mm. going forward so that, you know, they can plan for those lead times. Yeah, maybe turn to you, Maya. I mean, um, there's a lot to digest for um, project developers in Australia with the the various levels of sort of environmental regulation and the uncertainty sort of seeing reforms. Um, What are some of their concerns? Are they sort of used to dealing with this in sort of other jurisdictions or um, they're sort of quite happy to go along with it? Um, What might they be thinking? Yeah, um, yeah, so actually it's very expected in a new market that, you know, not the the path to getting a fully consensus project isn't clear. The most important thing is just to have a, a government that, you know, wants this and supports the industry um, so you can sort of solve problems together. Um, uh, and um, I would actually also add, uh, so we did quite a detailed review of the schedule and how, you know, uh, initial uh, projects could be operational by 2032 and you know if you work backwards that's you know requiring you to have your financing and final investment decisions by 2029 and you in the period leading up to 29 you're getting your approvals collecting data doing engineering and procurement work and and you know in that period the critical path is the the approvals but you know if we map it out and we take precedence from you know, other projects in Australia, it's 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 achievable. It of course needs you know the the support of, of government, but it, it it is doable. Yeah, yeah. Let's sort of turn to the um, the. Um the feasibility licenses, um, the first ones are going to be offered in Gippsland and just to sort of show the attractiveness or the interest in sort of, you know, in, um, you know, sort of this nascent Australian industry. I mean, there's been so many sort of international and local um, um, hopefuls sort of piling in um, into the Australian market and particularly into the Gippsland market. And I think we've probably seen, or we haven't actually sort of seen the details of many of their sort of proposed license um, licenses. They've sort of been drawing sort of, um, sort of big diagrams on the map when we suspect that many of these ones might be overlapping or adjoining and hard up against each other. Um, how's that going to be sorted out, do you think? Well, I think it's, uh, yeah, we, I think we're all waiting with great anticipation to see the results of this process. And it's, it's going to be so good for industry because, yeah, at the moment we're, so, we're paralysed, right, because nobody really knows which projects are going ahead and exactly where they will be at the end of the day um, and so it's hard, you know, for you know stakeholders, for governments, for also developers to to really, uh, you know, make serious moves and progress things. Um, so you know, at the end of this process, what we will have is you know, ten plus feasibility licenses. So you know, developers, uh, you know, clearly understanding, uh, you know, where they stand, uh, with. With a with a seabed boundary that they can then work with, um. So uh, yeah. Then you know, then then the process will start with them collecting data, and then you're know, fine tuning other things outside of their offshore area, like what will their cable routes be to the grid connection? Uh, you know, where will they land? Where will they have their onshore assets, and how will they all funnel into grid, etc. So, you know, the work will really start. Uh, so. 
uh, a really important turning point for industry once we get over this feasibility license hump. Yeah, yeah. Um, anything to add on that, Jackie? I mean, it's sort of it's it's going to be sort of, sort of quite a major moment, isn't it? Sort of the the first feasibility licenses, and you get that sort of be you know, sort of probably understand that's the sort of the green light for some of these projects to sort of you know start moving towards reality. Um, are they sort of is this is, is there a bit of jockeying going on in the background about sort of you know possible deals and agreements and cooperation or, or, or what's going on? Um, it's it's a, as you say, it's a it's a really interesting time. Um, and the, I think, you know, the way that the, the, the legislative framework has been set up is that there is a pretty clear process in terms of what has to happen where we've got um, potentially overlapping areas. And we know from the announcements that were made just prior to Christmas last year that um, there is a group of um, proponents, I think there are six who have overlapping areas and they're being given an opportunity to um, uh, to potentially resolve their um, their overlaps um, on the basis that at the moment they're they're of equal merit. Um, but you know that process, um, everyone is is sworn to secrecy, as it as it were. Um, so it, you know it really won't be until um, that process has taken its course and there is a final decision that will come from the ministers about those overlapping. Um, applications that will will see how many of the of the projects um, will be given that that feasibility license, and you know then, as Maya said, that will really unlock um, the next steps in progressing the industry. But you know, it it's a really interesting design in terms of we've got a you know a, a funneling effect um, very early on in the process for um, who can proceed, and then. You know, it'll provide some really interesting lessons, I think, for for the hunter, which will be the next region after Gippsland um, to open up with licences. Mm, yeah. One of the headlines that we saw um, late last year was the decision by um, Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek on the Port of Hastings facility. And so she described it, you know, and, and this has been sort of set aside as the primary assembly port for the offshore wind industry in Victoria, um, or at least that was a little plan by the Victorian government. Um, Plibersek said that the current pro proposals was clearly unacceptable. Um, Jackie, you can tell us a bit more about what that decision means in terms of environmental approvals for, for this facility and what the implications are for the industry? Yes, Giles, um, it, it came as a, um, I think, in, in some respects, um, a very, you know, a very strong and significant decision. Um, this was a decision that was made by Minister Plibersek uh, under the uh, EPBC Act that I was talking about earlier where um, Port of Hastings, uh, that the site is within a um, internationally protected um, Ramsar wetland area. So that means that um, the project needed to be referred to the Commonwealth under the EPBC Act and that referral identified that there would be um, potentially significant impacts on um, uh, Ramsar wetlands, as well as um, some other threatened species and migratory species. And um, it, it was really at this very early stage of that um, EPBC approval that um, the minister decided that the dredging um, activities and the, the reclamation of the seabed that needed to happen to build um, the infrastructure for for the um, for the the terminal would be so significant and have such significant impacts on the the wetlands that there was nothing that could be done in terms of avoidance or mitigation or offset. Um, and so, it, it, it um, in some respects has been a an early decision to say no to that um, to the impacts of that project from an environmental perspective. So it's it's an unfortunate situation where the, the minister said, you know, there's not any conditions that could be imposed on the proposal as it was to make it acceptable. And it means now that there's no further assessment to occur under the EPBC Act for this particular um, proposal. It remains to be seen whether it could be redesigned in some 
other respects or whether there could be something done but um, in the absence of moving it away from an area where there are protected wetland species um, it looks you know it looks as though it, it's going that that decision is going to have um, you know a very significant impact on the ability to use Port of Hastings um, as that mm. primary port and you know without that that approval, um, it, it doesn't leave it much room to move. Um, so I don't know, yeah, I don't know how it will be modified, but it does raise, you know, some really important questions about which other port facilities might play a role in terms of, you know, the ancillary functions that are needed for offshore wind. There are a number of others um, in Victoria and also in Tasmania that have been identified might be um, potential options for for the Gippsland region that um, was obviously relying on Port of Hastings but it, it does mean that you know we need to look elsewhere um, mm. given this yeah. was this was such an important part in the the uh, the Gippsland plans yeah my um maybe your thoughts on this too and and, and the implications in the supply chain and um and, and port readiness. Um, yeah, yeah. Because uh, as as Jackie says, it might have to be dispersed. I mean, presumably, be it'd be more attractive for everyone to have it in, in a central spot. But um, yeah, what do you think? Well, I, f I fully respect the decision that was made. Um, I think the communication of it was probably a bit unfortunate. I think you know before Hastings Gate, uh, Australia was like this A plus student in offshore wind development and a you know, attracting international interest. Um, and it's just gave a hint of a misalignment in government. Um, and um, yeah, Hastings certainly uh, isn't the only solution for Gippsland. So, you know, we have Geelong and Victoria and uh, Bell Bay and Tasmania, like both have you know, properties suitable, to, uh, you know, as long as they get upgraded, that could service the offshore wind industry. Um, you know, Hastings was good because it was close to the declared area, has naturally deep water, uh, it's state-owned, so it's easier to fund development of state-owned harbours. And it would be, it would have been a dedicated port, so unlike Geelong, which is a container port, so where you get more traffic and messier logistics. Um, so, you know, from a technical perspective, if Hastings can't be done, that industry, you know, can see other solutions and that's fine. The issue is now more time because harbors are notorious in any country. They take a long time to consent and develop. Then you have your procurement, construction, etc. So uh, the key is now to just move really fast with the alternative and get the upgrade plans in place and get the approvals expedited for you know which whichever solution we decide to go for. And um, yeah, I think industry you know kind of respects these decisions how they're made. Um, so now it's just all about, you know, what's plan B and let's get that moving ASAP. Mm, yeah. Look, one of the other issues is um, social license, and I guess we've seen sort of headlines in, in, in newspapers and things like that about some of the objections from some communities who um, are worried about the potential impacts. Um, one of the big things for um, obtaining social license, um, you know, comes down to sort of jobs and I guess sort of local opportunities for businesses and things like that. So, um, Jackie, maybe you can just sort of look at some of the issues here and, and, and what some of the uh, proponents can actually sort of do to um, to smooth this process um, because it's going to be important um, to win the support of, um, of of local communities and I'm guessing that sort of jobs and supply chains um, will be an important part of that. Yes, absolutely, Giles. Um, you know, I think the, the development of these projects um, obviously takes a significant workforce. Um, these developers um, will be embedding themselves in local communities in, in many regional areas in Australia where, um, and where, you know, the country is going through an energy transition where there are um, work, workforces who will need to transition from other forms of energy generation. And um, it, we've seen some really, really good examples of um, how that's been occurring already in Victoria, um, particularly with some of the early projects um, proposed in Gippsland. Um, and I think, you know, part of the key to that is um, 
is an educational piece about what offshore wind um, does, how it works, so that the community can can understand what is being proposed. I think um, it would be fair to say, you know, in in the onshore sector that um, there's been an evolution in terms of the understanding of what renewable facilities do and how they work. But um, Australians, by their nature, can sometimes be um, slightly sceptical until they understand what's proposed or there's a level of trust built um, in a new industry. And so I think that that plays a really important role, that, that educational piece um, and and then finding ways to to have the use of local content and local workforce, um, as I said, in these regions that will be looking to transition some of their workforce. Mm. Um, and, and I think also um, being being alive to and aware of um, you know the, the the visual impacts that some of these facilities uh, will will have where they're um, closer to the coast or in more densely populated areas that seems to be some of the concern um, further along the east coast it hasn't been as much of an issue uh, in Victoria so far but um, we've seen I think perhaps slightly more um, angst in terms of the consultation that's happened already on the the, the proposed declared areas of New South Wales so um uh, I think we need to, yeah, we need to keep working on that community um, involvement piece, particularly in those regions. Mm, yeah. Maya, I mean, one of the questions about this is is the level of um, local content. Um, but you would have seen in Vietnam and Taiwan um, some of the difficulties in sort of establishing local content, even though I think in particularly in Taiwan there was a great desire to do as much local content as possible. I mean, how difficult is it and, 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 and what will Australia realistically be able to do or what are the opportunities here? Yeah, and it's a uh, yeah, it's a really kind of tr tricky thing to implement, especially for early state, you know, the early projects where a lot of it is just about focusing on del delivering your project and making sure you have your turbines in the water. Um, so yeah, there's a lots of uh, models uh, for supporting or implementing local content. So you have countries like UK, Japan. Yeah, they have more softer policies and local content targets that kind of nudge developers and supply chain companies to go local, uh, but no hard requirements. And, and they've been successful, but that takes time to build to build up to your ultimate targets. And then you've had you know countries like the US and Denmark where they've put in more uh, incentive incentives, you know, things like grants and tax breaks, provision of land. And or building harbors, you know, to incentivize local content, and that's worked really well. Yeah, and then you have you know, the kind of more harsher policies of Taiwan, where you're given a list of components that you must manufacture locally, and uh, that's that's been difficult to deliver from a cost perspective. So you know, you can have as much local content as you like, uh, but it, it costs money. And what we've seen in Taiwan is, you know. And initially, let's say the cost of foundations being double what they were globally, and now they are still two to three times more what they are globally. So actually, you're getting an opposite trend, uh, um, which is you know not not good for the long term sustainability of the industry and renewables. And yeah, anyway, in Australia, there's lots of opportunity for local content on the services side. People here are very skilled. And we've done lots of big infrastructure projects and have an offshore industry, but uh, less so on the manufacturing side, of course. So that uh, that part is just due to you know, limited manufacturing uh, 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 facilities here. So. Well, I guess that might take time and might take scale. Um, and as you say, um, costs are going to be quite important because um, it's going to be interesting to see what the offshore wind technology actually does cost um, when it is up and running. Surely then there's opportunities for Australia to supply to steel, for instance. Um, we seem to make a lot of it. <laughs> is there at least that <laughs> that we can do? Um, yeah, I mean, you'll get this effect of Australia, you know, providing the very raw materials which are then processed internationally, manufactured and then shipped back here. 
Um, yeah, and I think, you know, <laughs> and you, you, you'll bang on. So the key is volume, right? So with enough volume, you can start to justify facilities that can do more locally. Um, and yeah, uh, to, to sort of get the suppliers to, you know, really seriously spend money and set up factories and bring their skilled people over here. They just need to be very secure in the sense that there is, you know, a clear pipeline of projects and not just lines on maps, but, you know, real projects that are, that are bankable and will, will happen. So, Jackie, where do you think the Australian government's going to land on this, on, on the local content one? Because this is a tricky question for them um, to sort of balance sort of, you know, local demands for industry uh, and participation and the need to actually get the technology running at, um, at a cost, at a competitive price. I think um, I, I'd, I'd concur with what, 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 um, what Maya has said that we, you know, we really do have that um, ability to offer services at the moment, but um, our manufacturing capabilities um, are just not there yet, and we, you know, we, do, we do need to see scale. Um, and I, you know, I think we've seen, you know, the Victorian government is very is um, very favourable. Um, in terms of promoting local content, um, but I, again, I think it, it it's going to take time um, with the the maturing of the industry. Mm, okay. So look, maybe just sort of wrap up. Um, Maya, you said at the start of this um, interview or this discussion that you know you're very confident that these targets, at least in Victoria, could be met. In fact, you're su suggesting that Australia should have um, even bigger targets. Um, you know, we've discussed some of the issues, some of the permitting, the fe you know the, for the feasibility studies. We've touched on some of the environmental is issues. We've touched on social license. We've touched on local content. Um, Given your sort of um, um, sort of you know sort of positive sort of um, outlook for the industry, you know, I mean, what are going to be the main challenges that we need to actually overcome to um, um, to actually sort of meet those targets um, that you say are, are very achievable? Mm -hmm. So to meet those targets, like I said, the key thing now, if you look at the the critical path. Is uh, it's basically first about um, getting uh, approvals, and that's just about you know having a relationship and a supportive government that you know prioritizes this and allows industry to expedite our approvals. Um, and then you know the, the next thing will be to attract the supply chain. Um, so uh, although the targets are very achievable, they're also smaller than what other markets our uh, setting um so uh yeah the, the risk is uh you know with a very uh tight supply chain at the moment uh due to increasing global demand but the risk is there is uh less interest in australia and um yeah there will be uh, a lot of work uh, to be done to show that you know we have a a market worth people investing in uh, and we do that by, you know, showing that it's a serious market, you know, that offshore winds in, in energy mix in the states where it makes sense, uh, you know, we can combine to show that there's national volume and that people should do business here. Um, I think the other thing we can do to give the industry credibility is also uh, show a very clear route to market for each state. So a bit like what Victoria are doing now through their revenue support mechanism, but through, through like, through this like uh i feel you know once we are there with really clear pipelines and a solid regimes with bankable projects then in industry will kind of rush in and, and, and do the rest right yeah uh, jackie any th thoughts on that what do you sort of think as the sort of the biggest hurdles that australia needs to overcome to actually sort of you know reach those goals that it already has and and, and possibly even higher goals i think um we we're we're racing against the, the rest of the world and we need to, as, as Maya said, I think we need to ensure that we are competitive on a global scale um, with the targets, as, as Maya said, where they are, um, we need to ensure that um, the rest of the world wants to come and do business here and that it makes good financial sense to come um, to come here. So I think we, we really need to have, you know, a combined, a collaborative approach between 
the private sector and government in terms of getting the support we need to bring down what is currently quite high capex for offshore wind. And I think Victorian government is is doing well in terms of some of the, you know, the policy settings that it's put in place. Um, we're getting there with our regulatory framework. Um, I think, you know, the other piece is that that I mentioned earlier is that coordination between between the different levels of government and then obviously um, the role that government might play in terms of um, that financial support to to really get the industry um, off and running. But I, I remain optimistic, Giles, that um, we have what it takes to do to do it down here and um, that we will have the rest of the world knocking on our door very soon. Well, it's all going to come out. In the end, a lot of it will come down to the financial support and incentives and how much they can be built and at what cost, I guess. And um, so beyond all the social license and the sort of permitting and the environmental issues, it's going to come down to the cost of technology, I suppose, and, and what the government can do to help. Um, any sort of ideas on, um, oh, very briefly, because we're kind of r running out of time, but um, are we heading in the right direction on this? I actually, and I think uh, sometimes like we're all a bit hard on ourselves. So what Australia has done, it started late, but what Australia has done in in this time frame is pretty amazing compared to other markets. And so, uh, yeah, to, to me, like the, the momentum we have and, and the focus and, and the efforts, you know, so far so suggest that, uh, you know, this will be a successful industry. Um, yeah, I think um, uh, we can always do better, and we absolutely need to and do more. But you know, the the the, the patterns are the, the right patterns, and the commitment and support uh, is is there to make this happen. Okay. Well, look. Um, thank you very much for joining us, um, um, Jackie and Maya. Um, it was great to sort of have your insight into this. Um, you've been listening to Jackie Plant and uh, Rob Marsh from Norton Rose um, Fulbright, and also Maya Malik from uh, Kima Energy. Um, this has been the latest in a series of podcasts sponsored by Norton Rose Fulbright um, under the rubric uh, "Locking in the Green Energy Transition." And you can check out the previous episodes. Um, one on the distributed network with an interview with Essential Energy CEO John Cleland and also one on the role of AI in the uh, modern grid and um, interviews um, with co-founder, um, Habitat Energy co-founder Ben Irons, um, both fascinating podcasts. Um, thanks for listening. Um, thanks for Norton Rose for their, um, Norton Rose for, for, for their sponsorship of this podcast. Um, offshore wind is certainly going to be a big issue and a fascinating one for the Australian energy and industry as it sort of transitions towards um, renewables. So um, thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to a special Renew Economy podcast series, Locking in the Green Energy Transition, presented by Giles Parkinson and supported by global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright.